Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the latest on rising food prices, lessons from across the food supply chain. Please welcome Darren Bax, Senior Research Fellow for Environmental Policy and Regulation at the Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon. My name is Darren Vax, and I'm a Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. I want to thank you for joining us today as we discuss the latest in food prices and learn what's really going on across the food supply chain. Food prices in May were a whopping 10.1% greater than prices in May 2021. Over the past nine months, each month's year-over-year -year food price increase has been above 4%, with each successive, successive month higher than the previous month, so starting at 4.6% in September and reaching 10.1% in May. These food price increases, which haven't been seen in over 40 years, are occurring across all food categories, from fresh fruits to fish and seafood. This data can make the situation sound so academic and impersonal, but make no mistake, these skyrocketing food prices are devastating for Americans and their families. We all know this because it's impacting each one of us in one way or another. Today, I'm honored to be joined by leading experts across the food supply chain. Mark Dopp is Chief Operating Officer and General Counsel at the North American Meat Institute. Jennifer Hatcher is Chief Public Policy Officer and Senior Vice President of Government Relations at FMI, the Food Industry Association. And we're joined by Tommy Jarecki, who's Vice President of Supply Chain Logistics at the Consumer Brands Association. So we'll have a conversation today that I hope helps dispel myths, lays out key facts, and, and identify specific problems and solutions. So let's get right to it. And let's start with a quick overview question for each of you. Let's start with you, Jennifer. Um, Jennifer, what do you think is contributing to higher food prices? Darren, I think the, the broader question is what is not contributing to higher prices? And certainly the prices, the prices throughout society are, are contributing, but elevated um, specifically in, in our world, certainly there are um, the labor shortage, costs, transportation costs, supply chain bottlenecks, and then ingredient challenges on the on the food front. Um, the other maybe shorter term components would include weather um, disruptions, recalls, and honestly, um, both shorter and longer term credit card fees. So just a host of different factors. Some things I didn't even think of, actually, Matt. Um, so, Mark, what was your take? What's going on? Well, I guess I'll start by agreeing with almost everything that Jennifer said. She had quite a laundry list there. Um, you know, the, the war obviously is contributing to this, uh, almost everything. But if I, if I can focus on the meat industry for just a moment, something that people tend to forget about is higher prices. In our case, the higher prices we're seeing is a function of record-setting demand for meat. Um, you know, with the ad, when the, with the sort of the beginning of the pandemic, the prices for meat products, poultry products, have gone up fairly dramatically. Although they are starting to drop a little bit on the meat side, but we are seeing, if you ask any reputable agricultural economist, we are seeing record-setting demand. And even though the supply has rebounded from the lower, you know, the problems that were that beset us early in the, in the coronavirus pandemic, uh, many of those issues have been addressed. But the record-setting record-setting demand has not diminished, and if there is, you know, great demand for a product, then even with a, a regular amount of supply, you're still going to see higher prices. So, you know, I'll add demand to the laundry list that Jennifer's already thrown out there. I'm glad you brought that up. We're, we're gonna we're gonna delve into supply and demand a little later on. So, Tom, let me uh, Tom, let me turn to you. What do you think about what's contributing to higher food prices? Um, and I'm not going to say anything talking with Jennifer and, and Mark just over you, but I'm going to add some maybe some specific numbers to some of those things that they just walked us through. 
Um, so when you think about these rising costs, right, the CPG industry alone is short 142,000 jobs, putting like, sort of a finer point on that labor question. We continue to see some of those supply chain bottlenecks cause and contribute to these rising costs. You have wholesale costs up nearly 11% overall. If you look across PPI, it's 12.6% um, just for food manufacturing. But if you really drill down into some of the important commodities, um, you see tremendous spikes of whether, you know, this later, but they look at like eggs, wheat. There's so many factors that are just like prevalent ingredients, let's say, that um, are significantly contributing to those cost increases. And that isn't then unpacking, you know, further issues around energy demand, as, as Mark said. So our industry um, you know, continues to see record-breaking demand. It's up six percent year over year, and that's. Uh, to 2021, of course, which is still up year over year, even from the early panic buying during the pandemic. So we've seen nine straight months of demand eclipse, even what was like record-breaking, clear-the-shelf panic buying. Um, and so I think that's the sort of, that's the sort of maybe color commentary to the, the demand question that you continue to see. So it's all of those factors, and you know, it just, it's, it's the perfect storm of events. So this is a good way to start. And I'd like to kind of delve into these issues. And one issue area I like to get into first is energy costs. Um, so, so Jennifer, from the perspective of grocery stores and all of your members, are energy costs having an impact on food prices that we're seeing on the shelves? They're in huge impacts. I mean, certainly on the transportation front, uh, the number of, of trucks that are necessary to transport uh, products to stores and to distribution centers um, and between suppliers, that is, that's an important, that diesel price is very important. And certainly um, also the impact is not only just on, on our side of things, but looking back to the cost of feed and fertilizer and the other component products and how those energy costs um, impact each of those. Certainly, agriculture and, and food production, in addition to that, the transportation side of things, are all energy intensive. And so, changes to the price of oil and energy have huge ripple effects throughout uh, the whole supp food supply chain. So, so, Jennifer, if I could follow up, um, I, I'm glad that you brought up uh, transportation costs because I, I think it's important that there's a recognition that issues in, in one area like in grocery stores um, or trucking can impact other areas. And, and can you kind of elaborate a little bit on the interconnected nature of the food supply chain and just how important that is when we're talking about food costs? Absolutely. And, and trucking is probably a perfect example um, when you think about, you know, the, the items on, on trucks, you, you have to have those trucks. And sometimes it may be that if, we have extra trucks capacity in our fleet. We may go to a manufacturing facility to pick up product. And you, then you think about the needs of, of trucks and how those um, are also important with our the challenges at ports and at rails in predictability. You can't, you know, if, if you don't know when an item is going to come into port or, or when it's going to uh, be ready at the at the rail yard, you don't know when to send that truck to pick up the extra item. So communication between all of these sectors. I know certainly during COVID, each of the three of us uh, had at least weekly communication. In most cases, it was more often daily communication. But um, just that, that interconnected nature of the supply chain um, all the way, honestly, from seed all the way to fork is, is so important. That's great. Um, so, Tom, getting back to energy costs, um, how are rising energy costs impacting food manufacturers? I mean, think about every you know aspect of the food manufacturing supply chain, whether it's getting a product from point A to point B on a truck or even just keeping the lights on. When energy costs go up, all costs tend to go up too. And so like it's all um, it is all connected. Mark, to your 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 point, I'm gonna add a little bit to what Jennifer was saying on the trucking side of things too. Um, that when you really look at 
not only the rising cost of uh, fuel, but we were already in a predicament when it came to transportation capacity in this country. Um, we're 85,000 drivers short. At any given moment in time, you're talking about 30% of trucks on the road are either empty or under significantly underutilized. And so there's a real issue when it comes to finding the capacity to move products. Um, so that just it, it continues to, I think, sort of, you know, you have those rising costs. It's, it's even harder to sort of you know, mitigate that and control those costs as a manufacturer um, or a retailer, you know, anyone in between. Um, these are all drawing from that same pool of available capacity as well. So, you know, we're, we've been bringing up trucking a lot, and I, I would think that one big aspect, obviously, of the trucking uh, issue, high energy costs, are the uh, high diesel prices. So, two thirds of 2022, the last time PIA had released data, the $5 per What's your take on that? Uh, Mark, you broke in and out a little bit uh, there. It is Darren. Darren, uh, Darren was the, so question was, the question was on diesel, the impact of diesel uh, increases. Yeah, diesel, diesel prices on truckers right now. Anyway, I, I just, Tom, at that? least from, from our perspective, it's an extraordinary impact. Um, but, you know, the, the cost of the labor cost and the availability, but also the, the diesel um, price increases absolutely are impacting, uh, um, you know, each of those sectors. I'm sure, sure Tom and Mark are seeing that as well. Right. Well, and, and every, every one of us on this call runs, is that, you know, has companies that run a business, truckers included, um, who are running a business, and they have to ensure that their bottom line is preserved. And so if their costs are rising, then those are certainly going to be shared across the supply chain. Um, that's not a surprise to anyone. Um, I also think that you, you see a number of our manufacturers operate and run their own fleet, and so as their costs increase, the cost to serve rises higher too. Um, so it's I don't think it's particularly surprising that when you see diesel costs increase that other, other costs all along that value chain, and that's compounded many times over, right? So um, the, the transportation of grain then costs more, which is the transportation then of our products to the retail store, which is the retail distribution center to the retail store. It's that, like, that cost is baked in multiple times sort of over the, the journeys throughout the supply chain. Mark, did you want to add anything at all to the energy costs? A lot covered there. Tom and Jennifer pretty much covered everything. I mean, I, I don't. We don't represent producers directly. I mean, we have some men, some members of ours who raise livestock, hogs in particular, and they'll tell you. And if you're not, if you're in the livestock production business, they'll tell you the three biggest inputs are feed, fuel, and fertilizer, and they've already been mentioned. And, and running a meat packing plant is no different than running a lot of other uh, food production operations. I mean, we've got chillers, we've got coolers, we've got energy to run the facilities, we've got fleets of trucks or we are you know we're hiring a fleet of trucks to deliver the product to jennifer's members for example so uh, you know it's really i don't have much to add it's no different than most of the others and everybody's seeing across the board increase it's that simple when it's gonna when that's going to abate that's the more interesting question uh, if i knew that i probably wouldn't be talking to you darren <laughs> well i need you to talk to me some more now because i'm going to turn to you again and we're, okay, we're going to switch to labor shortage and labor costs. So, Mark, the meat and poultry industry have had significant labor challenges. Can you explain some of these challenges, even the challenges that you had before the pandemic? Well, yes. Uh, so the, the let's start with the fact that the labor issues, the shortage of is, is the issue that when, when the CEOs of my member companies come talk to us and we've got an executive board meeting next week, for example, Labor's on the agenda, but, but we've had labor challenges, as you pointed out, well before the pandemic started. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's, it, the pandemic simply exacerbated those challenges. Um, I guess it's not terribly surprising if you think about it, where packing house, where slaughterhouses in particular and processing operations are located, oftentimes they're in rural America, 
where there's not the largest labor pool available. They may be the largest employer in the city or in the town or the county. Um, oftentimes that's the case. So you don't have the, the largest labor pool out there. Um, you know, there have been some of the restrictions in terms of uh, immigration and everything else. We would love to see some sort of immigration reform take place. Do I think that's going to happen? No, but I defer to experts like Jennifer when it comes to issues like that. But I mean, the, the fact of the matter also is working in a meatpacking plant is hard work. I mean, it, it, it is, it's, a, it's a difficult work environment and encouraging people or you know, pro providing an incentive for people to take some of those jobs sometimes is a huge challenge. Um, so we've had to adjust. I mean, you know, I mean, and it's it's not a secret that the meat industry was sort of the bloody tip of the spear in terms of, of the pers a perspective during the early days of the pandemic. I mean, we were able to overcome that successfully once we were able to implement the programs and practices that the CDC, you know, recommended it. But but what the what the companies have been forced to do is adjust, and they've adjusted in several ways. For example. Um, the average the average wage for you know, hourly wage now in a meatpacking plant is somewhere around twenty two dollars an hour. Companies have simply been forced to pay more. Um, that you know was three, several dollars an hour below that before the before COVID hit. So paying more is something that's been taking this has occurred. Um, it's not a secret. A number of companies uh, have announced some very creative um, community projects. Would be that. In some cases, building housing for employees. In other cases, uh, some companies are providing uh, community college education free to the members and employees' families. These types of programs and projects are being investigated by meatpacking companies all the time, and they've been pretty successful. And I guess the third point I'd make when it comes to labor is the labor shortage, which continues, prompts looking more and more at how do we do things without using as many people? You know, are there, are there, is there automation? Are there robotics out there? That, I mean, some things simply have to be done by people. But are there some things, are there some, some tasks that can be, be performed through mechanization or automation, robotics, call whatever you want, um, that, that makes it less necessary to have, you know, just, maybe we just need fewer people if we can step in with, with machinery to take care, to do the job that used to be done by people. So those are the three things that I, I think that we have to recognize that come out of the pandemic. And again, it's not just the pandemic, it was the shortage before, before COVID hit, so. Thanks, Mark. So Jennifer, when I think of labor shortage challenges in the food supply chain, at least me, I often think about the problems at the retail level. Am I right to think that there have been some serious problems and can you provide some examples? Well, and, and probably the reason you think about the retail level is we are often everyone's first job and uh, many people's uh, part-time job and retirement job as well. And so the average supermarket has more than 100 employees. We're very labor intensive uh, just, to, just to run a store. And many of our stores have, have many more than that. And there were just a number of factors that um, have have really put uh, challenges on on. Uh, food retail during the pandemic. And that one would be just when schools closed, um, you know, many parents then could not work. They had to choose between um, staying home with their children and uh, coming to work. Or in other cases, we had uh, students who, you know, had been a part of that, um, our after school part-time environment. And, and ultimately we were able to pick some of those folks back up, but it's just, the labor piece of it, uh, our members reported in that first year of COVID, they spent more than $24 billion just on um, pandemic-related expenses, half of that going to employees by in salaries and incentives. Mark mentioned uh, several of, of those pieces. But um, it's just, it's a big pain point and it's a constant battle to attract um, enough talent um, but also to retain them, as as Mark said, some of these jobs are um, they're they're really important jobs, and um, but some of them are are demanding. I mean, I know when um, in our warehouses, um, you know, it's it takes a special kind of person to be able to um, work successfully in in a warehouse and and uh, make sure that all the rest of us have the kinds of products that uh, we need. 
So I'm going to talk about supply and demand, and Mark, you had already talked about it. So, um, you know, I, I think one of the key issues that's going on here is some simple economics. In other words, basic supply and demand. Um, there are significant shifts in supply and demand during the peak of the pandemic as it's brought up. So I, I guess my question is, what's going on now and how does it impact the food prices? Tom, let me, let me turn to you on that question. Yeah, I mean, I'll sort of situate the conversation a little bit in the context of labor, too. Um, and so when you think about, um, I mentioned the number 142,000 open positions across the CPG manufacturing landscape alone. Um, companies, you know, are trying to pull out all of the stops to fill that delta. Um, so salaries are up six and a half percent, which exceeds sort of like other industry marks. They're becoming more flexible in terms of the scheduling arrangements and trying to work around folks' calendars and you know, sort of adapt to the changing workplace as it relates to, which is especially, I think, difficult in a manufacturing setting, right? When you're trying to run, frankly, 24-7 in a lot of cases or sort of now multiple shifts over the weekend um, and you're needing to pivot to account for the flexibilities that are so in demand by employees. And so you're trying to meet them where they're at um, to fill positions at a time when there's also, you know, frankly, very, very low unemployment in this country. Um, so there's there's only so many people. And as Mark said, many facilities are often in rural areas or often in um, you know, more challenging areas to hire in um, you know, for, for historic reasons, for proximity to agriculture, a whole host of reasons that go into that. But uh, at the end of the day, it becomes hard to find and retain good talent. Um, and it, and it, that issue is one that you can only address through sort of like a multifaceted approach. So immigration, to Mark's point, has to be on the table. You also have to think about what are the jobs training and uh, skills and education programs needed in the future to ensure that we have the right mix of talent going forward as a country. Um, that's a big conversation. Um, it's not one that probably Mark, Jennifer, or I are going to like single-handedly unpack um, on today's call or, or any time in the future, but I think that um, it's time for that conversation as a country to think about well, what is that supply-demand equation that you need on a labor front to really ensure the resiliency and the stability of, of supply chains, and especially ones as critical as, as food, um, to ensure that people have you know, access and to affordable and available products every time they go to the store. Thanks, Tom. Uh, so, so, Jennifer, I, I'd like to get back to you. Um, I'd like to get your take on this question. It's, as I imagine, I'm aware that your members are seeing firsthand what's going on with supply and demand, all these different shifts in like supply and demand. With the pandemic and after, what's going on? No, absolutely. And, and Tom hit on some key points there. But in the other things that I think I would, I would throw out is just on the ingredient side, certainly constantly battling uh, challenges with ingredients and also on the packaging end. That's one of the things that really hit us hardest uh, during COVID was, was not just the, the, the product itself, but finding the appropriate packaging for that, the product or a material in the packaging. And so that's one of those things that is that has and continues to impact supply. But the other part of it is the consumers themselves. And, and uh, you, know, you can kind of get on that durable wheel of, you know, if you um, cannot maintain the, con- the consumer confidence, then it then you may get back to a, a difficult time. Um, our our customers need to know that they're going to have the products available that they need when they need them, or otherwise, if they modify their buying patterns, then um, that could also impact that supply and demand piece. I know um, for many of us, we changed you know potentially even where we work physically. I'm in the office today, but that's not the case every day. I may be working from my home office or from from another location now that we have all this uh, Zoom features and uh, Teams features on the technology front. Um, but that impacts where you may eat lunch or, you know, all of the other factors or even where, you're, where you may eat uh, dinner or where your kids may um, uh, be eating in, in terms of the food supply. And so, um, part of it is, you know, the, the physical movement, location, and, and making sure we have the right products at the right place at the right time. Um, but again, that consumer demand piece and the consumer confidence piece is, you know, an important factor in this. And that, um, you know, some we want to 
make sure that, that folks have what they need, but don't feel like they need to, you know, have uh, take extraordinary efforts to stock up um, in times where there is less availability. So I'd like to turn to some of the myths that are connected to each of your industries as it relates to high food prices. And I'm gonna bring some up, but feel free to add any additional myths that I missed. So Mark, I'd like to start with you on this because in my opinion, the meat industry is being unfairly criticized through misleading and inaccurate information. So like, for example, Mark, is there, is there increased consolidation in the meat, in, in the meat packing industry? And, and what would you say to critics to try to assert that the industry is acting in an anti-competitive manner? Well, first, let me agree with you that we're being unfairly criticized, so we'll start there, okay? Um, in terms of the myths, okay, if, 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 I may say this again later, but if the folks watching this uh, webinar today don't come away with anything else I say today, uh, there is a myth that is being perpetuated by plenty of people, particularly up on Capitol Hill and even in the White House, and that is that there is increasing consolidation in the meat industry. That is simply fundamentally not true. Um, in the in the fed beef sector in particular, um, there's what we call the four firm concentration ratio. Uh, I, I, I'm a little bit familiar with this. I've worked on some of these mergers back in the late 80s. Uh, I like to say that I'm a food and drug lawyer and a recovering antitrust lawyer, so I know just enough about this stuff to be dangerous probably. But the four firm concentration ratio for the fed cattle industry, and, and that is that's the, the fed cattle will really provide your basic, you know, your steaks and your uh, roasts and that sort of thing, not really so much on the ground beef side. That ratio, um, that four firm ratio has not changed meaningfully since about 1990. It has toggled right around 82, 83, 84%. And admittedly, that is a relatively high number, but it is no different than the four firm ratio, ratios in a lot of other sectors in the economy. So people who say that, that, the meat industry is increasingly consolidated, are ignoring the facts. And those aren't my numbers. Those are USDA data. That's USDA data that I'm citing. So um, that's the, that is a myth um, that needs to be dispelled. And then the second thing I'll say about, um, about in response to, your, to the comment about or the question about anti-competitive behavior, listen, I have a stack of studies about this high in my office. Um, the meat poultry industry has probably been investigated, studied, analyzed more than just about any other out there. We're the most heavily regulated industry other than nuclear energy, and we've been studied and investigated to death. Um, and every time that somebody does a study, they, can't, they come back and they say, it's a very competitive industry, and I will attest to that. Um, the USDA conducted analysis or conducted an investigation in the wake of the Holcomb fire and then sort of spilling into the early months of COVID. And the report there said, there's nothing to see here. There was, it was, it's a competitive industry. So I'm going to reject just categorically uh, the, the, the assertions made by those who believe that somehow, some way, the meat poultry industry is not competitive, or at least the meat industry. So Mark, you know, one of the arguments I can make is that, um, you know, the concentration level has been relatively the same since 1990, which it has been, you said. It's kind of hard to blame current high food prices on the concentration level, uh, unless I'm missing something, unless it magically took 30 years for it to kick in. Um, uh, Darren, if you listen to some people, we've been hanging around for 30 years waiting to pounce. Uh, that, doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't really make any sense to me. So, I mean, and frankly, if you look at, uh, one thing I'm, I should have mentioned, if you look at, at there's in, in, in our business, in the cattle side in particular, the beef business, there's something called the cattle cycle. And it kind of goes back to the supply and demand issue that we were discussing before. So in the cattle, so right now, we are about to enter a phase in which the herd is shrinking. And it's shrinking for a variety of reasons. Um, in 2014 and 2015, for example, the herd was at its small, the cattle herd, the cow herd was at its smallest level since the Truman administration. And the producers, the cow-calf producers in particular, were making record profits while the packers were hemorrhaging money. Well, the cattle cycle, which is about an eight to ten year window, depending on the circumstances, 
it's a cycle. And in the last couple of three years, the, the Packers have been, been making more money and the producers have either been making that much or in some cases at the feedlot level, maybe even losing money. But that's the cyclical nature of the cow, cattle business. And what we're seeing right now is the cow herd is beginning to shrink. Uh, again, for a variety of reasons, there are more uh, young cattle, female cattle going to, going to feedlots to be processed and harvested. Um, and that means fewer cows, which in turn means fewer calves, which means ultimately fewer cattle to be supplied to the system, right? Um, we're going to continue to see that, and like I said, other factors are contributing to that. There's a severe drought in certain parts of the country. Producers are simply sending more of their animals to the feedlot and ultimately to the harvest facility because they can't afford to feed them because of the weather. So all of these factors are part of you know, the supply and demand we talked about as well as you know, uh, the, the myths versus the realities. So Mark, I'm not picking on you. Tom and Jennifer, I don't want to be jealous. I'm gonna ask Mark another question, but Mark, you know, one of the concerns I have, and this actually applies to Tom and Jennifer as well, is that the myths that we're gonna talk about can influence legislation and proposed regulations. Just briefly, um, is there any legislation that's kind of being proposed, regulations that's being proposed that are kind of buying into these myths? Yes, unfortunately there are. And let me talk, let me focus on one right now and maybe we'll talk about the other one later when we talk about government intervention. Um, but there is a bill that has that's moving its way through the House of Representatives and, and its companion movement through the Senate. And it's called. It's basically referencing this call. It's what I call the Office of Special Special Investigator. Somehow, some way, some uh, some of the folks up in Congress have decided that um, if we if the Congress creates an Office of Special Investigator at the Department of Agriculture, that will magically make food prices go down. Now, USDA. In particular, the Packers and Stockyards Division of the Agricultural Marketing Service is charged with enforcing the Packers and Stockyards Act. And for the folks on the call who aren't familiar with the Packers and Stockyards Act, it's our special little niche law um, that affects the meat and poultry industry specifically, and it's and it it is basically there to address unfair practices and undue preferences in the meat and poultry industry with respect to you know how Packers treat producers. Now, there is a division at USDA, like I said, the PNS division in the Ag Marketing Service, that is charged with enforcing that law. Congress, in its infinite wisdom, or at least some in Congress, in their infinite wisdom, have decided that they need to create an office of the special investigator, which would do, wait for it, enforce the Packers and Stockyards Division. So you have to wonder a little bit what the purpose is of this wholly redundant office that would again, rest within the confines of the Department of Agriculture um, to the tune of somewhere between five and nine million dollars to make it work, depending on who you listen to. You have to wonder a little bit about how that is, one, is it necessary, and two, how does creating this office, you know, how does creating this office contribute to reducing inflation and lowering food prices? And oh, by the way, they're doing this they're attempting to do this at a time when USDA has announced that it is going to propose some new regulations that would directly conflict with the holdings of how the Packers and Stockyards Act should be enforced and implemented in conflict with the holdings of eight separate federal appellate courts. So I'm kind of scratching my head about how creating this office and having them go forward is going to do anything to lower the price of food. If somebody can explain that to me, I'm happy to have the conversation. Thanks, Marga. You know, Jennifer, I want to switch to you to talk about myths. And, you know, the, the myths that I hear surrounding grocery stores, at least what I'm hearing, are, um, revolve around claims that stores are unfairly and unreasonably passing on the costs of customers. So how will you respond to that? Darren, that's a great question. And um, I our profit margin on the uh, food retail side has always been one to three percent. We keep that every year, and it's never never hit that top top end of that margin. So um, I think that's we're trying everything to keep prices as low as possible during all 
all these extraordinary inflationary pressures. So I think the um, Mark hit on on one of the components too is that there has been an increase in just the number of, of customers that are um, eating in at home or eating in different environments, and that has the volume has increased, but certainly the margin uh, remains extremely narrow. And the different um, uh, cost structures or cost pieces that have been added on uh, during the pandemic have, have really uh, just caused huge um, you know, impact as well. So for one thing, I know credit card fees, that's something almost everyone moved to the use of credit cards uh, because of the pandemic. And that's uh, driven up the, that uh, particular factor is now the, the second leading uh, costs that many on the retail side are facing, and um, certainly combined with with all of those other pieces there. But I would say the the margin has remained and uh, remained the same, and uh, it's it's just the the pressures on the other end that are that are really adding to it. Tom, are there any myths that you'd like to add? Do you think that might be exist out there? Um, and. I mean, I think with all due respect to, to Mark's members and Jennifer's members, um, I would probably argue that our membership constitutes some of the most recognizable brands in America, right? That are uh, the names that you recognize at a grocery store aisle. Um, it's ultimately probably an easy place to lay blame if you're a consumer, right? You're like, well, why does the soda cost more? Like, what's the soda manufacturer's fault? Or why does the cereal cost more? What's the cereal manufacturer's fault? And it's just simply not true. Um, we are all in this inflationary environment together. Um, we're all subject to those same uh, price and cost increases, the lack of transportation, the supply chain bottlenecks we've already sort of like run through and not getting into like the labor side or the energy side that many consumers don't see at all because there's sort of like this, there's an aspect of like taking the supply chain for granted at times, I think that still persists even as it's risen to the fore throughout the pandemic. Um, but it's easy to, I think, uh, blame a brand rather than the circumstances that those brands find themselves in. And I think that what we've continued to try to do throughout the pandemic and then, you know, sort of this post-ish pandemic phase as we, you know, see rising inflation is to call attention to the real problems and try to develop policy solutions that really target those and, and sort of zero in on you know, how to fix those as the issue rather than, uh, you know, just pointing fingers at, at private enterprise. So kind of related, but let's switch gears a, a bit and, and look at how existing government intervention could be driving up food prices. So Tom, I'll come right back to you. So if, if you had a magic wand to get rid of some harmful gov government interventions related to food prices and driving up food prices, what would you try to get rid of? I mean, let's start with transportation. It's just like an easy example, right? Like the, the ability for us to move more product um, hasn't changed significantly in years. And so if you could just run a heavier, just as safe truck, um, you could make that system work a lot more efficiently. Um, if you are able to uh, you know, think through what are the regulations, the difficulties in terms of you know opening a new plant or establishing a facility or getting a new product online when you when companies innovate and develop that product and bring that product to market, that process could be drastically simplified. Um, you look at, I think, in, uh, not to pick on FDA, I think working through a lot of things right now, but you know, there's been a lot of press and media around um, some of how FDA has been handling issues over time. Um, and certainly I think that when it comes to like getting a house in order or just sort of like having a clear management structure and the ability to really have oversight over the food system, that there could be some opportunities to really foster a more uh, collaborative relationship with the business community and also one that aligns really to like clear vision and goals and then ultimately execution. Uh, and then, you know, just thinking about other aspects, thinking about that supply demand conversation that we just had as the cost, let's say, of various edible oils has increased or become entirely unavailable in some cases, like sunflower oil because of the, the war in Ukraine. Um, consumers having, or I'm sorry, not, manufacturers having the ability and the flexibility to adapt to those environments is critical. Um, so if they're, you know, and there's some COVID-related um, 
temporary flexibilities that are in place. But thinking long term, if there's a process to establishing um, really clear uh, opportunities for labeling flexibility, the ability to sort of swap in and out very similar sort of non-differential ingredients into a product just to account for those supply demand fluctuations and the availability concerns, that's ultimately going to really protect consumers from some of those cost increases and ensure that product is on the shelf um, because it's giving the manufacturers the flexibility to account for those whether it's drought or seasonal variation or a product or war in Ukraine, whatever the, the case is, right? You see, you see these events, these disruptions, and we have to react to those. So that flexibility would go a long way. That's a great list, Tom. Um, so, so, Mark, I, I see a lot of misguided intervention in the heat industry. So you know, real quickly, what, what do you think is some intervention that should be addressed? Oh, I could probably pick at a few nits on the, you know, the USDA, I think, but I, th- I think they do a pretty good job. Uh, from my perspective, uh, you know, some of the ideas that have been floated out there to, that I would argue might lessen the food safety approach. Uh, from my perspective, food safety is non-negotiable. Um, and anything that's suggested that might um, adversely affect that, we shouldn't be talking about. But let me let me focus, let me comment on on an, a government intervention that is about as egregious as I can think of that could be coming down the road, and that is there is a bill in the Senate uh, sponsored by Senators Grassley and Fisher in particular that would move to require uh, packers to purchase some specific percentage of their cattle uh, in the open cash market. What's evolved over the past 20 to 25 years is we moved from about 50% cash sales and fed cattle to now it's about 20%. And the reason we've done that is the producers came to the packers and said, if we, prov- if we provide you with livestock, with cattle that have certain uh, characteristics or attributes, uh, be it hormone-free, never ever, you know, whatever the case may be, um, or and find and and, t- and invest in genetics, for example, to improve the quality, such that we now have something like something north of eighty percent of the beef in this country, either grades of prime or choice. And that wasn't the case twenty to twenty-five years ago, because that's what that's what the customers who frequent Jennifer's member stores are looking for. So what we have is the development of these things called alternative marketing arrangements. Well, Senator Grassley doesn't like alternative marketing and wants to reduce their, their use. But they've contributed significantly to the quality of the product, increasing the demand for beef. Um, but this bill would regress us back to where we were 25 years ago. Um, if, this were, if this becomes law, you're taking the decision about how cattle producers want to market their cattle out of their hands and putting it in the hands of USDA. And USDA is going to say, if you live in this particular region, Packer X, you have to buy 40 or 50% of your cattle on the live market when their suppliers may not want to do that. And the end result is going to be a decrease in quality, an increase in price. And, you know, I, I'm not familiar with, I'm, a, I'm an ag economist by training and an attorney, but if anybody can identify another another sector of the economy where the government is telling somebody, thou shalt buy some percentage of your products in this particular fashion, I'm not aware of it. And, and of course, you know, the whole concept of freedom to contract seems to be kind of being trampled exactly. on. Um, so Jennifer, um, let's, you know, what are some government interventions in your industry, I mean, we've talked a lot about energy and labor, and what are some policies you think to address? Yeah, um, I would jump onto two areas that Tom mentioned and just uh, tag on there. One on regulatory flexibility. Um, we were able to get some regulatory flexibility during COVID, and some of that I think should be extended. Uh, Tom mentioned the ingredient substitution piece, and I would also mention. Um, some of the substitutions that uh, and, and different policies with regard to WIC, which is the program for uh, babies up to age five, um, women, infant, and children is what WIC stands for. But on size of packaging, uh, I know, you know, for instance, one of the 
one of the items that's on that uh, WIC program often is uh, peanut butter. And during the, the pandemic, when um, certain manufacturers were reducing the number of runs of peanut butter, they wanted to put it all in 16 ounce uh, uh, jars of peanut butter rather than a 32 ounce jars or having the multiple sizes. So in the WIC program, allowing those kinds of substitutions on, on sizes, um, that doesn't seem like a lot, but when you have a, a both on the manufacturing and retail side to be able to provide products during some of those supply chain challenging situations, it's very helpful. And the other thing is um, uh, some of the, the flexibilities, again, more in the WIC program on um, uh, not having in-person interviews, having being able to have interviews um, related to participation in the program via technologies like we're using right now uh, to cut down on, on some of the extra time and expense associated with some of those interactions. So uh, I would say regulatory flexibilities, and there are a host of them that uh, happened during the pandemic that we feel like should continue to stay in place. Second, uh, again, on the transportation front, Tom mentioned um, truck sizes and weights, but I would also say the young driver pilots, and several of us know that as, as the Drive Safe um, Act. And if John was with us, I know he would jump on that as well. But um, we want to encourage uh, young people as they graduate from high school to enter um, that trucking profession. And uh, that uh, getting that pilot up and running and ultimately getting it broader, uh, we think would be uh, a real contribution towards that. And then the third category I would add in there is on the tariff front. Um, one of the things that we have been spending a tremendous amount of time on is the infant formula shortage and, and crisis. And what we found is importing infant formula from overseas, in many cases, you're paying a, a double digit tariff on that product coming in. So I would say, you know, to review any tariffs on products um, that Americans cannot source uh, from, you know, domestically. So if, if we're looking at some of those and we want that product imported, then um, we should review those tariffs associated with it. So those, those would be my three categories, regulatory flexibilities, um, again, deep dive on transportation and some of the opportunities there and then tariffs. That's great. And I, I feel like we've kind of gotten into a lot of the solutions. So as we wrap up, um, I'm gonna ask you just to, Provide a few key takeaways that you think viewers should take with them about current food prices and, and feel free to add any solutions that you think that you weren't able to get to. So uh, regarding, you know, addressing higher food prices. So Tom, let me start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the big takeaway should be one that of course some, it's a multitude of issues that are contributing to these rising costs. Um, but it all is stuff that's happening around the supply chain. And so we really can't let our foot off the gas when it comes to addressing supply chain issues, both in the short and the long term. And again, from like a short term standpoint, I think we did a great job of walking through some of the flexibilities that might be accounted for, or some of the, the regulatory changes that might happen immediately and have that, that immediate benefit. We also just saw the passage of things like the Ocean Shipping Reform Act um, and other sort of tools that are potentially going to, uh, you know, improve some of the, the situation on the maritime shipping front. We have rail issues that are a real challenge right now in addition to the trucking side. Um, but when it comes to just that, that big long-term picture, um, there has to be um, real strategic focus on supply chains going forward um, at a policy-making level. And you know, we see opportunities to do that through China competitiveness legislation, um, whether that's at the Department of Commerce or, or elsewhere, but really being able to zero in and drive investment in domestic manufacturing going forward is critical um, to ensuring supply chain resilience and ultimately the availability and affordability of the products that are on the shelf for consumers. Thanks, Mark. Uh, I mean, uh, Tom. Uh, Mark, uh, what are some key takeaways and any solutions we may have missed? My solution is fairly straightforward, and that is just when it comes to the markets and the supply chain and everything else, Less government intervention is probably more, is better. Um, I mean, let the forces of supply and demand work. Uh, for example, the meat industry is is incredibly complex. People may not appreciate this, but an animal, for example, can be sold as many as six times from the time it's born to the time it goes to meet its maker in a slaughterhouse. Um, 
we don't need the government weighing in every time the price of Canada drops a little bit or the price of beef goes up. Let the market work. Um, we were talking earlier about anti-competitive behavior. Uh, we, there had been five or six, I'm losing track at this point, hearings, either in the House and the Senate side over the past year and a half about looking at the, the, at the cattle markets, the beef markets, the meat industry, etc. Um, at one of those hearings, one of my members, that runs a sort of a small to medium-sized beef packing company, was, was a witness. And if I may, I'd like to quote him for my final words. And that is, and, and Francois grew up in France. He started his career in France, and then he moved to the United States. And he said, 30 years ago, I saw firsthand in France the result of direct government intervention in the meat industry, and it was a failure. I hope we avoid the same mistake here. That I close. Great work. So, Jennifer, what are your takeaways and any solutions we may have missed? Well, I, I think maybe just uh, starting at where, ending with where we started at the beginning. Practically every American is is feeling and has felt the um, effects of inflation, with the biggest impact that they are seeing both at the fuel pump and, and uh, on, the, on the food side because it's so important to their families. And just as an industry that we're doing everything we possibly can to try to avoid passing on increases and to try to control our costs. And we certainly see the impact that these increases are having on families. We're seeing our customers starting to have to trade down with to find a less expensive product and sometimes a less expensive protein. And um, while we know this shows the economic stress that they're facing, we also know that we, each of us are able to, to offer the most economical solutions available to families during this time. So we, we're all in this together. And um, you know, I think it's important for us to all stay in touch and, and uh, really appreciate you um, putting this program together, because I do think it's it's very helpful. Yeah, well, Jennifer, I, I want to thank you and, and Mark and Tom. Um, just thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's invaluable, really, to hear your expertise. And, and I think it's really important to kind of get a complete picture of what's going on. And I think we were able to do that. And of course, I want to thank all of you who are, who are participating in today's program or watching a recording of the event. I encourage you to visit heritage.org to learn more about food prices and all the important work being done by the Heritage Foundation. Also, please visit heritage.org to learn more about future events. Again, thank you. Have a great day, and we look forward to seeing you again soon.